This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest is comic, actor, and writer Sarah Silverman. She's known for breaking taboos, often to mock sexism, racism, and extremist politics and religion. She now has second thoughts about some of her earlier comedy, wondering whether, when she was trying to mock racism, she didn't understand her own limited perspective as a white person. We'll talk about that later. Silverman has broken a big personal taboo from her childhood. She was a bedwetter. It was a nightly occurrence until about the age of 16. It was especially humiliating during sleepovers with friends and the summers she spent at sleepaway camp. She wrote about that in her 2010 memoir titled The Bedwetter. Now that book has been adapted into an off-Broadway musical. She collaborated on it with songwriter Adam Schlesinger, who co-founded the band Fountains of Wayne, wrote the title song for the movie That Thing You Do, the songs for the rom-com Music and Lyrics, and the TV series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and what may be the best song that ever opened the Tony Awards ceremony, Broadway, It's Not Just for Gays Anymore. He was one of the very early COVID victims and died April 1st, 2020. The songwriter David Yazbek completed writing the songs. The Bedwetter officially opens June 7th at the Atlantic Theater Company in Manhattan. Sarah Silverman, welcome back to Fresh Air. I've really been looking forward to talking with you again. Um, you were on our show in 2010 after the Bedwetter memoir was published. So congratulations That's right. on That's right. yeah, congratulations on adapting the most humiliating experience of your life into a musical. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. Oh yeah. Um, so what was the turning point when you decided to make this really hidden part of your life something that you talked about on stage and wrote about? The shame started officially subsiding when I was um, young. I just was sure it would be my deepest, darkest shame and, you know, my biggest secret. And, um... When I was around 10, I was in my bedroom and I had a little color TV and my mom came upstairs. I had, my room was in the attic and she said, um, ooh, turn on Johnny Carson, the, this actress that's on. She was promoting a, a mini series called V and she said, um, she used to be Miss New Hampshire. So we watched it together and I couldn't believe it. You know, she said it very cavalierly, like it was nothing, that she was used to be a bedwetter. And it it just blew my mind, you know, that um, someone else with this problem would be so casual about it and, and say it on national television. And it just kind of, um, it blew out a wall in my brain a little bit, you know, where I, I saw the world a little differently. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, maybe I, I could... Um, get past this. So now The Bedwetter is a musical, and Adam Schlesinger was writing the songs, but, you know, really, sadly, he died um, before the show was completed on April 1st of 2020. In the early days of COVID, when, I mean, COVID was terrifying. There was no treatments. There was virtually no testing that you could get. Uh, I mean, it was just... It was, this was probably during the period when bodies were piling up in freezer trucks on the streets of Manhattan. I mean, it's just terrifying. He, right around the, the beginning of that, um, he, yeah, we, we um, I had come to New York for three months for the, to rehearse and put up the show. 
you know, the show was completed um, to that point where we were going into rehearsals and previews. But of course, there's always so much to change and songs you cut and songs you add and, you know, and um, yeah, he, he I remember he had finally gotten his hands on a test like five days into having this like 104 fever and then never got results, just never heard back, <laughs> you know, like there was just nothing really available and we knew so little and and then he was in the hospital, you know, then he texted, I'm in the, can you believe it? I'm in the hospital with actual COVID, you know, and, and it felt so, it was scary, but because he was texting us, it just felt like, okay, well, you know, and then the texting stopped and we started just getting emails from his girlfriend, Alexis. And, um, and then that was, that was it. April 1st. It just, it was so shocking. And, um, surreal and uh it, it still doesn't really feel real other than this show is fi- is finally on and um you know he's everywhere in it and uh yeah it's his family came to it and and they didn't know how they would feel and I think it was very life of you know it was cathartic for them they ended up really loving it but it's you know of course it's just you know, a parent doesn't want to have to see some a posthumous work by their son, but it was, um, yeah, it's been really surreal. And uh, and David Yazbek's been a mensch to come in and kind of uh, doula the rest of this, you know, into uh, being and um, a very selfless, beautiful act by him, just kind of seeing it through. And he's been incredible. Are some of Adam Schlesinger's songs still in it? Like, how many of the songs are ones that he was able to complete before he... Oh, most of them, most of them. Sarah, this may be asking too much, but we don't have any of the songs. They haven't been recorded, at least not for any kind of public use. Could you sing a few bars of one of the songs? Oh, my gosh. I mean, you have a great voice, so I I know you could pull it off, because I'd love to hear some of the music, and I know our listeners would, too. Oh, my Terry. Okay, I, uh, let's, well, one that I love is um, Sarah Makes Some Friends. You know, this is about my life when I was 10, so it's just a little tiny 10-year-old girl playing me, and um, she makes some new friends, and she brings them home, and she introduces them to her dad, Donald, who owns a discount clothing store called Crazy Donnie's Factory Outlet. And uh, she introduces her friends to him, and he seems to know all their moms. And finally, one of them says, how do you know all our moms? And he starts to sing, um... In my line of work, women's fashion retail, I need to know my customer right right to the last detail. What does she want? What does she desire? Then I can position myself as her supplier. So when your mother showed up at the door of my store and said she needed pants, well, I could sense she meant more. So I put her at ease with my expertise until I could see she was relaxed and calm. And by then, some sets have closed Uh, in front of the girls, so it's just him on stage, and then he continues. So I closed a little early, and I your mom. (laughs) Here's a little sample. Oh, my goodness. But that's really funny. 
It's so, it's just so well, it's very, very funny. There's, um, and then just heartbreaking, beautiful songs, a lot of really funny songs. Um, I, I'm not doing them justice, singing them for you in my phone. Okay, let me just stop you for a second, though. So did your father actually have um, intimate relationships with his customers, like the father in the show? It's an exaggeration, but yes, he did have... Uh, he was, uh, you know, I think he was exotic, hot property in uh, New Hampshire in 1980, you know. I want to talk to you a little about your series, I Love You, America. And this was 2017 and 18, and you, you've incorporated songs that you've written into several of your shows. And in your series, I Love You, America, the series opens with this big production number in which you're walking through the streets singing and trying to be very inclusive, singing about your love for all races and ethnic groups and religions. But in trying to say the right thing, you keep kind of saying the wrong thing, um, which is a kind of style that you became famous for. I'd love to play this song, but before we hear it, is there a specific kind of song or production number that you thought of yourself as as, um, you know, parodying? Uh, well, I think the style I was singing, I was trying to be kind of like a um, generic Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> I think, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, let's hear the song. kinds of people. I'm categorizing human beings and putting them into little individual boxes. I mean, whether I mean it or not, I'm part of the problem. I love you, mailman person. I love you, bus driver, too. I love you, police officer. Oh, that's, yeah, that's easy for me to say. I mean, I can walk into any encounter with the police assuming they're gonna serve and protect me. That's my luxury. That's called white privilege. You know, a few years ago, I was sitting around and I go, wow, there's a real epidemic of cops murdering unarmed black teenagers. And then I realized that's not an epidemic. That's how it's always been. I'm just aware of it now because of social media. And I was so shamed. And I just wanna be a good ally. How can I be a good ally? It's not my job to teach you how to be a good ally. Right, no, I know, you're right, of course, but there's no way I can know unless someone whose experience I could never understand is willing Sarah, to. Sarah, seriously? Take a class or something, I'm busy. I'm not all black people, I'm just me. I'm just Retta. I love that about you. 
I, I really love that. Can you talk a little bit about the process of writing that? God, I don't remember. I'm so glad you played some of it because I couldn't remember it at all. Um, I think it was just like <laughs> making fun of my own process of kind of awakening to the to the things that we all, um, so many of us became like conscious of um, at that time and uh, and being the one that makes the mistake. And, and, you know, it is something that I think is important is, you know, I see so much, um, an odd, with, listen, I, the, you know, I, I have a million problems with the right and, and stuff like that, but just within my own, the left here, um, I just get frustrated by a, a kind of an elitist thing where you've got to know all the language and you need to adapt immediately and, and uh, your history has to reflect everything we know right now. And there is just very little grace I see. And, and you know, I know that with friends that are um, non-binary or their pronouns are they, them, or, you know, I... No, you know, I, I love embracing that and using it, but I mess up constantly. And I'll go, oh, God, oh, I mean, they, they, you know, I'll go, well, she, oh, they, they, you know, whatever. And, and they always say, you know, don't worry about it. You're trying. You'll get it. Don't worry. And I do think it's like um, instead of just this hard line of you're not getting it yet and you're, you're bad for that, but just kind of like, you know, I always say to people who scoff at they, them pronouns or anything kind of new, I go like, you can fight it, but in two years you'll be, it will, you will have embraced it. That change can be something that can be uh, supported and um, with the understanding that it takes a beat for people and sometimes a longer beat for other people, you know? It doesn't make them bad and that saying uh, you can't be in our club because you don't have all the language right is so f much less fruitful than come join us, sit by me. There's room for you here. Do you feel ever like you were shut out of something because you said the wrong thing or used the wrong noun or pronoun? Oh, you know, I'm sure I'm not, I, I certainly don't mean it personally. I'm fine. You know, I'm not defending myself, but that I see people being called out constantly um, when they could just be a little more gracefully corrected and, and included, you know, that there's, there's this um, air of judgment, I, I feel, that emanates from the left that is not fruitful. Like, I know there's a million examples that would make me, you know... Um, too pie-eyed in what I'm saying, but I do think that there's more that comes from that, from, from understanding that we're all connected um, than, than buying into the whole thing that we're teams that hate each other. You know, um, I'm wondering as a comic what it's been like for you. I don't know if you've done stand-up lately, but you've certainly done a lot of stand-up over the years. Seeing Chris Rock slapped really hard on stage by Will Smith, and then not long after seeing Dave Chappelle like pushed on stage by somebody in the audience who 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 you know just ran onto the stage, 
and had to be like dragged off of it. I mean, these this is dangerous. So, what does it make you think about as as a comic, and especially as a woman comic, who I think, like, because comedy was always such like a male dominated field, and it was mostly like guys at the comedy clubs for so long um, that women felt especially um, out of place, and often that a lot of the audience didn't get it because it had been so male dominated in the past. Right. I mean, I think we, as an entire people, like forgot that there are more women than men in this world. <laughs> you know, like I remember being told like not to talk about sp- things that are specific to women on stage because um, because it's the men that laugh and the women only laugh if the men are laughing. So you have to appeal to them, which is, you know, that was, uh, let's see, you know, 1990. But um, I, I took that on for a while. I mean, it's just bizarre. Not very long, but I did kind of go, well, they must know, you know. But um, the whole Chris Rock thing and the Chappelle thing, it, I feel like it's indicative of um, this move we've made as a society where we expect more from our comedians than our representatives. Oh, that's an interesting way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Though I'm sure the representatives are getting all kinds of death threats. Sure, but so do comics. Well, oh, that's true. Yeah, that's right. But that it wasn't always that way, was it? I mean, like, were comics getting death threats when you started in comedy? Uh, no. But before that, I'm sure, I think um, Lenny Bruce probably did. Um, but there was also less, there wasn't, certainly there was not social media and there wasn't, it was just like letters or maybe phone calls. So you don't, don't really understand the scope of uh, <laughs> insane people, you know. Um, comedians draw a certain pathology that where people think they know you. And so I think it's all been kind of compounded lately, you know, where you can find something a comedian said publicly, you know, 12 years ago and kind of litigate that on social media when we've all been growing and changing and and learning and and understanding the people around us more, um, in large part due to social media and and having a farther reach and making the world smaller in that way. Let's take a short break here, and then we could talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is comic, actor, and writer Sarah Silverman, and her 2010 memoir, The Bedwetter, is now adapted into an off-Broadway musical that is in previews and opens June 7th at the Atlantic Theatre Company in Manhattan. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with comic, actor, and writer Sarah Silverman, her 2010 memoir, The Bedwetter, about the most humiliating part of her childhood, wetting the bed every night, has been adapted into a new musical, which is off-Broadway at the Atlantic Theatre Company in Manhattan. It's in previews and officially opens June 7th. The songs are by Adam Schlesinger and David Yazbek. Sarah Silverman starred in the shows The Sarah Silverman Program and I Love You America and was featured in the series Masters of Sex. Well, you've reflected on your comedy from the past and you have like mixed feelings about some of it. Like some of the things, some of the comedy you've done in the past 
you feel bad about now. You feel like you didn't quite get it, that you made assumptions about the kind of comedy you, you could do as a white liberal, but maybe you made the wrong assumptions and that you were just living in a bubble. But I want, I want to play something that you said on, um, on your series, I Love You, America. And this was a monologue on your show. And you were talking about blind spots that you had when you were making jokes. And this, you particularly apologized for having worn blackface on one of the episodes of the Sarah Silverman program, which was your Comedy Central sitcom based on, in which your character was named Sarah. And your character was always like saying and doing the wrong things. So um, let's play that excerpt from I Love You, America. As a white person, I have only had to see the world through the lens of the white experience. People of color, in addition to their own perspective, have had to see the world through the lens of white people their whole lives in order to survive, to get jobs, to succeed, to exist. I've never had to see the world through the black experience, though as a liberal, I was sure that I had. (laughs) There was an episode of my old show, The Sarah Silverman Program, that... Thank you for looking at the applause sign. (laughs) Anyway, I had a moment on my old show where I could not see past the the scope of my liberal white lens. And look, comedy isn't evergreen, it gets old or trite or irrelevant as fast as the changing times. Um, Obviously, except for Garfield. I mean, come on. (laughs) The way that cat at once loves lasagna and hates Mondays. It's genius, it's timeless. And look, there's stuff I did on the Sarah Silverman program that I love. I loved playing this this arrogant, ignorant asshole. But then there's stuff that I did on there that, you know, I cringe at. And uh, one thing in particular is, to call it problematic, would be too kind. Um, Okay, I'll just rip the Band-Aid off right now and say it. I did an episode where I wore blackface. The context was, uh, well, irrelevant because it's not okay to do blackface ever. But slash and, there is irony, because in this episode, I played an ignorant woman in a liberal bubble who thought she was illuminating racism by wearing blackface. What I didn't realize then is that, in reality, I was an ignorant woman in a liberal bubble who thought I was illuminating racism by wearing blackface. I mean, good grief. That is some real liberal bubble We know it's wrong, so we can do it. So that was Sarah Silverman on her series, I Love You, America. Sarah, when did you have that realization that some of the things you did, you wanted to kind of retract, that you thought, looking back on it, that they were uh, wrong? I think as I was growing and changing and seeing more of the black experience through black voices, and, you know, I hadn't gotten into trouble. Nobody had exposed it at that point. I exposed it myself. And um, it was something that I think is important to do because I want to be able to prove to myself and, and show to others that you can't change your past, but you can be changed by your past. And, you know, even at that time, I thought I was being subversive and, you know, making the, a point, but um, it's, it certainly doesn't hold up in any way. And, uh, and what I was able to learn from it, I was able to use in 
what I was doing at in that moment. I mean, listen, there's even just in comedy, you have to change with the times and grow, or else you become a caricature of yourself, or a, or a, just a signifier of a time. And um, not only is that no way to to create art or be a comedian, but it's no way to live. And I just think it's got to be okay to mess up in life and to acknowledge it and notice it and be changed by it. Well, I, first of all, I want to say, I thought this Sarah Silverman program was really funny. Ditto with Jesus's Magic, which was um, a comic film that you did of, of your show. And... Um, I thought the kind of jujitsu comedy that you did was really funny when you played a white liberal but also mocked that person for not really getting it. Um, it was this kind of like double layer. And I remember in one of my intros, because you've been on our show several times, one of the intros I said, if you hear Sarah Silverman's comedy, you might think that she's, you know, racist or 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 sexist, but if you listen closely, you're realizing, no, she's mocking that. She's mocking people who are racist. She's mocking people who are sexist. And I had always thought that that was really successful, that you did that in a very successful way. So I was really interested in, when, in hearing that you didn't think, you know, in retrospect, you don't think that it was successful I think it was successful. I, I, I got successful from it, you know. That's how I know it was successful. But in, so it, in that time, it worked. I mean, listen, all that stuff had to go through several filters, which were also probably um, white people, you know. Um, but it, it was on the air, and it was in, you know. And so it's really just looking at it through the scope of the moment that makes me cringe, but I've also always felt like if you don't look at what you did in the past and cringe, <laughs> you you haven't grown much, you know. Well, I really appreciate that you are so reflective about your own comedy. Can I ask you for an example of something that you were referring to from your early years where you were saying something because you meant the opposite, but it could be taken out of context and people would think you really mean it? Um, I don't see color. To me, everybody's white. <laughs> That's really funny. Do you still feel good about that? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, I didn't know the word white privilege, but certainly that was what I was exploring in a lot of my comedy early on that other people described as like she's playing a Jewish American princess, which never popped into my head and was never my experience growing up in New Hampshire. I'm not, you know, uh, you know, but um, but that's how it was perceived, I think, by people. But to me, it was really exploring what I didn't know what was called white privilege. So I'm going to reintroduce you here. If you're just joining us, my guest is comic writer and actor Sarah Silverman, and her memoir, The Bedwetter, has been adapted into an off-Broadway musical. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. So um, I don't have children, and I'm always interested in how people choose to have children or not have children if they have the choice, and that choice seems to be on the verge of being eliminated for a lot of women if the Supreme Court really does overrule, you know, overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah, it's certainly the plan, isn't it? Yeah, it seem, seems to be. 
Can you talk about choosing to not have children? Yeah, I think I always kind of thought, well, you know, I'm going to adopt when I'm 40. And then I was 40 and I was like, I think I would like adopt when I'm 50, you know. And, uh, and I remember being, you know, in my late 30s and my gynecologist pushing me to freeze my eggs, you know. And I said, I, I don't want to have children and you know, he said, well, you don't, you might want to down the line. I said, well, if I do, then I'll adopt. And I'd like that to be what my option is. And, um, but, you know, as I, as I, you know, I love kids. I love babies. I love kids so much. And I've said this, you know, in, as a joke, but I really mean it, that the only thing I love more than kids is doing anything I want at all times. And um, <laughs> that's just really been my choice. There's so much I want to do. And, you know, now there are very successful, you know, women comedians that have children and families. But it, it certainly was not how it used to be. And, um, and it still is something that I imagine is extremely hard to navigate. And... It always was interesting to me that men comedians were often married and had kids, and it did not get in the way of their careers at all. You know, I had I was having tea with a couple of guy friend comics, and they were telling me how there's a comedian, Mike Lawrence, who's very funny um, and and a really good writer. And they and they said, you know, we came up in comedy with Mike's mom. She was a comedian. And I was like, oh, my God, that's, that's so interesting. I, what, where is she? What happened to her? And they said, um, well, she had Mike. And it just really hit me so hard, you know. Um, and maybe that was a choice she made, and it was, you know, you know, something that was a real mitzvah in her life that she did, you know, I, I, I don't know her at all, but it just was, it was such a given to them that so many women's careers in comedy, it's you, that's the choice. Do you want to have kids or do you want to have a career? And that just isn't the case for men. The relationship you're in now is, um, you know, one of several long-term relationships that you've had. And you said that in the past, you felt, even though you were really kind of strong and independent as a comic and in your career and you could say anything on stage, that in relationships you often felt like you were just like either overshadowed or that you had to be more um, uh, uh, compromising in relationships. And now you're just kind of, you know, embracing who you are and being yourself and um, you can say it better than I can because you know your thoughts. I felt sometimes like I was... Uh, contorting myself to be what girlfriend meant to them because it's so it is important to me to be a really good partner you know and but you know I I've learned what I really need in life like I didn't know that I needed to be alone for a solid amount of time every single day and so I didn't know how to protect that you know and it's, it's no bueno when I don't get it. Like, it's important. Took me a long time to realize that. How do you get the alone time that you need? 
um, I take it. I mean, listen, when I'm with Rory, who's my partner, we live together, which I did not see myself ever doing again. Um, we, we do our own thing. We, we have kind of a parallel play. You know, I'll be upstairs and I do my, the stuff I like to do. I like to spend time alone. I like to be, you know, speak out loud, um, talk to myself. To, you know, there's, I have a process that, that like I never, I, I didn't understand that I could value, you know, even if it's just like hanging out, taking a bath, singing out loud, singing in the shower, talking out loud, um, you know, just doing things that really are like uh, what I've learned are important to, to my process as uh, someone who makes stuff and writes stuff. So, uh, you know, part of your memoir, The Bedwetter, which is now an off-Broadway play, was about um, depression and uh, how your mother was so depressed during some of your childhood that um, she stayed in bed, as I think she does in the in the show. Um, and then you've been on antidepressants that have really been helpful. But in 2016, you had an abscess on your windpipe and had to have emergency surgery. And you were taking off your antidepressants. Um, I'm not sure why, if that was a, a mistake or intentional. But in, anyways, you went into what's been described as a, as as chemically induced suicidal thinking. Um, and that, that must have just been horrible. Like, you really have to taper off of antidepressants. Um, it, it's really, and if my experience is a common experience, it, it's really dangerous. You know, I mean, listen, these doctors saved my life. I, uh, I had this abscess and I had no idea. And it, I was uh, moments away from it bursting without realizing it. So I had a, a very dangerous surgery. And, um, but it, it worked. You know, I, uh, my boyfriend at the time and my manager who were there, you know, it all happened so fast. You know, I went to the doctor and he rushed me to the hospital um, that it would be about 50% chance of survival, you know. Um, but I survived, so then it was fine. But I, they, my blood pressure's very low, so they weren't able to completely put me under. So what they did was just give me, just snow me with opioids, you know, and I just, I have no kind of visual memory of it. I was totally out of it, you know. Um, I, th I guess my eyes were open, but I have no recollection. And um, they took... You know, I, I've been on Zoloft since 1994, and it really works very well for me. And you really can't take someone off of that uh, cold turkey. It's dangerous, but they did. So um, I got out of the hospital after eight days, not realizing I had not been taking my medication for a week. And... Um, I was also on a lot of medication um, that makes you uh, kind of emotionally unstable and was going through withdrawals from eight days of basically having like all the heroin in the world in my body. You know, it's just all morphine and uh, Dilaudid and whatever they, they pump into me um, to not feel anything. So I was, I mean, if it wasn't for my boyfriend at the time, I would have jumped off the the roof of my building. It's all I could think about doing. I, everything was too heartbreaking or too beautiful in like for for a few days there and um 
And my sister finally said, they, they ha- did not give you any of your Zoloft. And just knowing that, and I took like three right away to start getting it into my body. And, and it, you know, just, it helped, it helped me, it's, you know, get back on track. Well, I'm glad you, you are past that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, Sarah, it's been great to talk with you again. Um, it's been a few years, so I'm really glad we had this chance again and that it's for such a, a kind of happy occasion. Yes, me too. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you, Terry. Sarah Silverman's off-Broadway musical The Bedwetter officially opens June 7th at the Atlantic Theatre Company in Manhattan. After we take a short break, we'll listen back to an interview with Roger Angel, the revered baseball writer who wrote for The New Yorker, where he also served as fiction editor, died last week at age 101. This is fresh air. For many fans of good sports writing, baseball season was also Roger Angel season. He wrote about the game for The New Yorker, where he was published most of his adult life. His first piece was published in 1944. In 1956, he became the magazine's fiction editor. He described The New Yorker as the family store. His mother, Catherine Sargent Angel White, had worked there as an editor. His stepfather, essayist E.B. White, was a New Yorker writer and contributing editor. Angel's writing earned him a place in the Baseball Hall of Fame when he received a Career Excellence Award in 2014. Roger Angel died last week at the age of 101. We're going to listen back to an excerpt of the interview I recorded with him in 2001, after he'd written a book about pitcher David Cohn. Roger Angel, let's talk about your writing career a bit. Um, You've been writing for The New Yorker since 1946, so that's 45 years. When you started writing for The New Yorker, your mother was the fiction editor, your stepfather, E.B. White, was one of the magazine's star writers. Did it feel like the family business to you? Yeah, it did. Uh... I mean, I didn't think in those terms then, but I really wanted to be a writer, I guess, and and an editor, too, I, so I ended up doing both. And writing for the New Yorker seemed the natural thing. And I did write a couple of little fiction pieces. When Back those those days, we could have tiny little back-of-the-book fiction pieces that got me going. But uh, I think I'd learned from my stepfather really how hard writing is. I mean... His writing always, E.B. White's writing always looks absolutely like the easiest thing in the world. Just nothing to it. There's no strain in anything he ever wrote. But I'd watched him as a teenager when he was writing the, the notes and comment page for The New Yorker every week, and he'd go into his study up in Maine and uh, close the door and be there all day long, and there were long silences between the little r- rips and sounds from the typewriter. And he'd come out, and he'd be silent and pale, not saying anything at lunch. And at the end of the day, he'd file it off. And then the next day, he'd say, it wasn't good enough. He'd try to get it back again. Writing is hard. And um, I think that uh, there aren't many writers who write with, uh, write with ease. Uh, so I got that idea early on, too. Your mother was fiction editor of The New Yorker. And this was in an era where not that many women even worked. And... Um, Certainly, most of the women who did work worked in traditional women's professions, and being fiction editor of The New Yorker doesn't fall in that category. Were you aware of how unusual it was to have your mother do what she was doing? Terry, I don't think I was sufficiently aware. I mean, I, I always admired her, and she thought of herself, she sometimes she didn't use the word feminist, but she, she spoke of herself as being a working woman. But work was so much a part of her life, and The New Yorker was the main event in her life, really, and 
it surrounded her every day, and I think of her now, and I think of her with galleys in, in a manila envelope under her arm or, or uh, around the house or even in bed in the morning or something, a bunch of galleys and brown, soft brown pencils and softer and erasers, a lot of erasing, uh, the, the stuff that comes off erasers around her and smoking cigarettes and... Uh, uh, that was the, the the standard of her life, and she was deeply involved with the magazine and with her writers. Uh, I think that uh, if Annie White inspired me to be a uh, a writer, then certainly she inspired me to be an editor. Um, I actually ended up as the fiction editor of The New Yorker myself. I'm still a fiction editor there, and uh, at one point I would I I inherited inherited her old office and. A shrink that I was seeing at the time heard that I'd moved into her old office and on the same job that she'd had, and he said, this is the greatest single act of sublimation in my experience. <laughs> <laughs> Your stepfather, E.B. White, was the co-writer of, you know, the most used style book, Strunk and White. Is that a style book you've used over the years? Oh, sure, yeah. There is a set of this general advice in there. Uh, be clear. Don't be fancy. Uh, I don't have them by heart, but that's 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 the heart of the book. Um, there are lots of helpful hints about punctuation, and anyway, I once told me the rule about that and which, which I memorized, memorized on the spot. He said, "The New Yorker is the magazine that cares about which. The New Yorker is a magazine that cares about that." <laughs> No, I'm sorry. The A Magazine, which cares about that? Oh, a see, magazine. this never helps me. I'm still as confused right. as ever. <laughs> One is the defining, the magazine that, or non-defining, A Magazine, comma, which. <laughs> you know, with that and which, I always say to myself, should I struggle again to figure out what the difference is between the two, or should I give up and figure most people don't really care anyways? What advice would you have for me on that? I think you're right. That's, Give I, up? I don't stop. I don't stop and think about it. I, I, I just put down what, what. I mean, part of my part of my mind does this anyway. Usually gets it right, and uh, I I don't stop and say, is this the correct form? And I I will. Uh, the big thing is to look at look at what you've written and and to when it's done and to see if it's any good and to also to think about how it sounds. I think a lot about how writing sounds. Uh, you can have a perfect sentence that sounds terrible in the end. If you s- almost say it to yourself as, you, as you're closing and at the end, uh, you'll probably get it right. I still edit John Updike, and this is what he does. He's, he, he corrects over and over, and he, he corrects on page proofs. The last day things are going in, he will rewrite and rewrite, and, say, and he'll say on the phone to me, how's that sound? How's that sound to you, Roger? Uh, and I do the same thing to myself. How's that sound? Writing is is uh, is meant to be heard as well as looked at. My interview with Roger Angel was recorded in 2001. He died last week at the age of 101. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, my guest will be poet Diana Getch. Her new memoir, This Body I Wore, is about transitioning to living as a woman when she was in her late 40s. We'll also talk about what it was like to grow up trans in a time when she didn't have the language, literature, or subculture to help her understand what it meant to be trans. I hope you'll join us. 
Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs>